Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Amy Bloom at Dakota County's Galaxy Library in Apple Valley. Amy Bloom is among the elite set of contemporary American storytellers to see international success as a novelist, short story author, and screenwriter. Bloom's short fiction has been nominated for both the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award, and appeared in popular anthologies including The Best American Short Stories and O. Henry Prize Stories. A psychotherapist by training, Bloom also created, wrote, and produced the lifetime psychiatry drama State of Mind. She brings all this talent and experience to bear in her third full-length novel, Lucky Us, described by Kirkus Reviews as a multi-layered historical tale about different kinds of love and family. Lucky Us takes place between 1939 and 1949. It was a period in American history that was really interesting to me, in part because you see the seeds of change that emerged in the 60s and 70s um, in that period. I know that when people look back now on the 60s and 70s, they go, oh, it was all the fault of Dr. Spock and you know, blah, blah, blah. But in fact, you don't move back as a country with much tugging and pulling, we just keep moving forward. And you see the seeds of change in the war because suddenly we needed women to work and they couldn't wear skirts because they would get their skirts torn up in the factories. And even after we send them home after the war, the factory owners are still saying it never ran better than during the war when the women were at work. And even though big parts of the country were really reluctant to integrate, um, we had a war and it was necessary to change the way we approach the armed services. And so you see these big shifts in how we approached our society. Um, the other thing that really captured me about the 40s, there are two other pieces. One was the Roosevelts, who are fascinating people and who were much loved and much hated throughout the country. I hadn't realized that there were other presidents before our current one who was being hanged in effigy um, around the country, but President Roosevelt certainly was. And, um, and the final thing for me is the music. So every chapter title in Lucky Us is a song title because the music from that period is not only such a great period from the 30s and the 40s and the jazz and the, and the songs and the lyrics, but also the fact that the music was such a connector for people. 
that if you were in roughly the same age group with somebody, even if you came from a different background, even if you had different interests, that music spoke to you. And there was a tremendous overlap. I mean, obviously, it wasn't the case that um, you know, everybody who loved Bing Crosby loved Billie Holiday. But there was always a big middle for the culture in which everybody had heard this song or that song. And there's something for me about this idea of music as this river that ran through people's lives from, from the top of the culture to the bottom of the culture, um, as opposed to being divided into tiny little niches in which if you listen to whatever, if you, if you listen to Lady Gaga, you may not be listening to Miranda Lambert. Um, and it was different at that time. So what I thought I would do is read from a few different sections and talk about how I was approaching the work. And then when we're done with that, I would be happy to answer questions about your writing, your reading, my writing, my reading, and anything else I know something about. The very first chapter is called, I'd Know You Anywhere. My father's wife died. My mother said we should drive down to his place and see what might be in it for us. She tapped my nose with her grapefruit spoon. It's like this, she said. Your father loves us more, but he's got another family, a wife and a girl a little older than you. Her family had all the money. Wipe your face, she said. There was no one like my mother for straight talk. She washed my neck and ears until they shone. We helped each other dress, her lilac dress with the underarm zipper, my pink one with the tricky buttons. My mother did my braids so tight my eyes pulled up. She took her violet hat and her best gloves and she ran across the road to borrow Mr. Portman's car. I was glad to be going and I thought I could get to be glad about having a sister. I wasn't sorry my father's other wife was dead. We'd been waiting for him for weeks. My mother sat by the window in the morning and smoked through supper every night. When she came home from work at Hobson, she was in a bad mood even after I rubbed her feet. I hung around the house all July, playing with Mr. Portman's poodle, waiting for my father to drive up. When he did come, he usually came by two o'clock in case there was a fireside chat that day, and we listened to all the fireside chats together. We loved President Roosevelt. On Sundays when my father came, he brought a pack of Lucky Strikes for my mother and a Hershey bar for me. And after supper, my mother sat in my father's lap and I sat right on his slippers. And if there was a fireside chat, he did his FDR imitation. Good evening, friends, he said, and he stuck a straw in his mouth like a cigarette holder. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. He bowed to my mother and said, Eleanor, my dear, how about a waltz? And they danced to the radio for a while and then it was my bedtime. My mother put a few bobby pins in my hair for curls and my father carried me to bed singing, I wish I could shimmy like my sister Kate. Then he tucked me in and shimmied out the door. Monday mornings he was gone and I waited until Thursday and sometimes until next Sunday to see him. My mother parked the car and she redid her lipstick. My father's house was two stories of red stone and tall windows with fringe lace curtains behind and wide brown steps stacked like boxes in front of his shining wood door. Your father does like to have things nice while he's away, she said. It sure is nice, I said. We ought to live here. And my mother smiled at me and ran her tongue over her teeth. Could be, she said. You never know. She'd already told me she was tired of Abington, where we'd been since I was born. It was no kind of real town, and she was fed up to here with hostessing at Hobson's. We talked a lot about finding ourselves a better life in Chicago. 
Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. I sang as we got out of the car, and I did a few dance steps like in the movies. And my mother said, you are the bee's knees, kiddo. And she grabbed the back of my dress. She licked her palm and pressed it to my bangs so they wouldn't fly up. She straightened her skirt and told me to check her seams. Straight as arrows, I said, and we went up the stairs hand in hand. My mother knocked and my father answered the door in the blue vest he wore at our house during the president's speeches. My father hugged me and my parents whispered to each other while I stood there trying to see more of the parlor, which was as big as our whole apartment and filled with flowers. Maybe, my father said, what the hell are you doing here? Maybe my mother cursed him for staying away, but I doubt it. My father had played the gentleman his whole life, and my mother must have said to me a hundred times that men needed to be handled right, and a woman who couldn't handle her man had only herself to blame. When I say men are dogs, my mother said, I'm not being insulting. I like dogs. <laughs> Behind my father, I saw a tall girl. My daughter Iris, my father said. I could hear my mother breathe in. Iris, he said, this is my friend, Mrs. Logan, and her daughter, her lovely daughter, Eva. I knew standing in their foyer that this girl had a ton of things I didn't have. Flowers and crystal vases the size of buckets, pretty light brown curls, my father's hand on her shoulder. She wore a baby blue sweater and a white blouse with a bluebird pin on the collar, and I think she wore stockings. Iris was 16, she looked like a grown woman to me. She looked like a movie star. My father pushed us to the stairs and told Iris to entertain me in her room while he and my mother had a chat. Iris told me in her room that the whole college, and I didn't know my father taught at a college, if you had asked me, I would have said he read books for a living, came to the chapel to grieve for her mother, to offer sympathy to her and to her father, and she said that all of their family friends were there, which was her way of telling me that my mother could not really be a friend of her father's. We heard the voices downstairs, and then a door shutting, and then the piano playing, my angel put the devil in me. I didn't know my father played the piano. Iris and I stood at her bedroom door, leaning into the hall, and we heard the toilet flush, which was embarrassing but reassuring, and then my father started playing the Moonlight Sonata, and then we heard a car's engine. Iris and I ran downstairs. My mother left the front door open and just slipped into Mr. Portman's car. She'd set a brown tweed suitcase on the front porch. I stood on the porch holding the suitcase, looking at the road. My father sat down in the rocker and pulled me onto his lap, which he had stopped doing last year. He asked me if I thought my mother was coming back, and I asked him, do you think my mother is coming back? My father asked me if I had any other family on my mother's side, and I lay my head on his shoulder. I'd seen my father most Sundays and some Thursdays since I was a baby, and the whole rest of my family was my mother. I was friendly with Mr. Portman and his poodle, and all of my teachers had taken an interest in me, and that was the sum of what you could call my family. Iris opened the screen door, and she looked at me the way a cat looks at a dog. We sat down to meatloaf and mashed potatoes, and the third time Iris told me to get my elbows off the table, this isn't a boarding house. My father said, behave yourself, Iris. She's your sister. Iris left the room, and my father told me to improve my manners. You're not living in that dreadful town anymore, he said, and you're not Eva Logan anymore. You're Eva Acton. We'll say you're my niece. I was 13 before I understood that my mother wasn't coming back to get me. Eva is not the first character that I came up with, but she is the central character 
in this piece, partially because I really wanted, I wanted a fresh pair of eyes in this period of the world, and I wanted a, a child who was not in herself romantic, but who was a good observer. And I could always hear Eva's voice in the most sort of straightforward observation, because part of what you know, I recognize is that she was an only child raised by a single mother, so she was pretty used to observing and being among adults and seeing how grown-ups do things. Um, and I also gave Eva, I think, very much my own quality as a kid, which was <clears throat> somebody who spent a lot of time in libraries. And um, my dad would take me to the library <clears throat> at usually at about one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and he would say to me, I'm just going to get my hair cut. I'll be back in a little while. Now, my dad was practically bald, and so there's no way it took him four hours <laughs> to get a trim and a shave. But he would always come back just as the library was closing at five o'clock, so I learned how to say very early on, my name is Amy Bloom. My father really is coming back at five o'clock, and he, this is my telephone number. Um, and you know, there were a lot of wonderful things about that period, including the fact that you could leave your eight-year-old at the library for the entire afternoon. But the other thing that was wonderful for me were the librarians. And the librarians are also sort of very benign, if distant, figures in the novel for Eva, because no one ever said, don't read that. You know, what I always say to people when they are worried about what their children are reading is, only worry if they don't read. Anything they read that they shouldn't read, they probably won't understand. And although <clears throat> it's not the case anymore, where for me, when I was in the stacks of the Arendelle Public Library as a little kid, every time there was a word I didn't know, I'd have to run down three flights of stairs to find the dictionary and run right back up. And I have to say that the more intriguing the storyline, the faster I ran down the stairs so I could get back. And I had decided that I would work my way through the stacks. So I had started with the A's. And the very first book um, that I came to was riveting to me. And so the four hours of my father's absence passed as I was lying on the, on the floor of the stacks. And Mrs. Atanas, the librarian, back in the day when librarians were librarians, and she kind of moved through the world like the Queen Mary, sort of like the prow of a ship with two pairs of reading glasses, one on each bosom. And, um, and so we were sort of, I was sort of eye to toe with her shoes, and she said, Oh, what's that you have there, dear? Tell me what it's about. And I said, oh, it's wonderful. I said, there are these girls, and they are in these outfits, penoir sets, which I'd had to run down the three flights of stairs, penoir sets, run all the way back, and marabou mules, run down the three flights of stairs all the way back, because we didn't have marabou mules in my house. And she said, and what happens then? I said, well, they, you know, they spend some time together, and then at the end of the day, their gentleman friends come over. And she said, do they? I said, they do. And she said, and what happens then? I said, I don't know. They, they play canasta. I, I'm not sure what they do. I said, I said, they have a snack. They play cards. And she said, what's the name of the book? And I held it up, and it was called Polly Adler's A House is Not a Home, subtitled Memoirs of a New York Madam. And she, and she said, you must take that home and share that with your mother, dear. Um, and I was hooked. I was hooked on books. I was hooked on stories about lives. And um, 
Although it didn't always prepare me for everything, I wanted to give Eva some of that quality. Um, Eva and Iris become close, and they uh, take off for Hollywood because Iris is determined to go and become a movie star. She doesn't become a star. She does become an MGM bit player until her career is um, sidelined. And um, when it is sidelined, there are two figures in their lives. One is Francisco, the makeup man for MGM, who has taken a liking to Eva and to Iris, and their father, Edgar, who shows up again, probably hoping that things will be going well for them and therefore things will be going well for him. In the morning, the four of us went to the diner for breakfast. This is Eva. The two men walked ahead. My father ordered eggs and toast, and he said the breakfast was on him. He said that he was very, very proud of Iris and her success, and not a lot of girls could do what she had done. Iris said, don't bother. You're too late. My father said that he was sorry he hadn't come sooner, but they had had to tie up his affairs in Ohio. And my sister said, don't bother. We're broke. Oak Bray. Francisco said that Iris was telling the truth. He said that no one even remotely connected with the movie business, not a restaurant, not a dress shop, nor a beauty parlor, was going to hire Iris after what happened. My father asked, what happened? And Francisco and I watched Iris because it wasn't for us to say. I got caught kissing another girl, Iris said. Miserable, puritanical sons of bitches, my father said, and he patted Iris's hands. That's all, he said to Francisco. We walked back to the apartment, and Iris said that her father would be gone soon. There's nothing for him here, she said. And Francisco went down to the courtyard to make a call, and the three of us looked at one another. So what's your plan, my father asked. Iris said that we were going to move back to the other apartment and that she would keep looking for work. I said I would do some dog walking, and my father raised his voice. You two have suffered an untoward blow from which you are not going to recover quickly. You can't pay the bills you have, and you have no expectation of paying the bills in the future, and you have to see that you can't take advantage of that poor lady who was your landlord. One does not, if one can possibly help it, take advantage of one's true friends. I started to ask him exactly how that was working for him when Francisco came back into the room beaming. He turned to my father. He said, what do you do for a living, Edgar? Oh, poetry and prose, he said. I was an English professor, now retired. Must be nice to be retired, Francisco said. And he turned to me and Iris. You know my sisters in New York, he said. Carney and B, the girls say they know about a job for your father being a butler, and he didn't even look at my father. And for you, Iris, you could teach some kids some little kids will call you a governess. No one even looked my way. And my father shook Francisco's hands. There are no words to thank you, he said, and came back a few hours later with a 1938 Chevy station wagon. Nothing to it, he said. We packed up everything we owned, and Francisco brought over his two suitcases and his huge makeup box, and I ran down to Mrs. Gruber, our old landlady, and brought her back with a bottle of her creme de menthe, and we all took a swig. My father kissed her hand. Mrs. Gruber said, goodbye, all of you. And she kissed me on the lips and walked away. And my father said, wheresoever thou move, good luck shall fling her old shoe right after. That's Tennyson, he said. And no one argued with him. He slid into the passenger seat. Iris and I crammed into the back seat, and Francisco winked at us. My father clapped his hands. It was pretty much his finest moment. This section is called Every Day is a Holiday. We sang every morning in the car. My father sang, it's cold without your trousers, 
and a little bit of cucumber. Francisco, my father, sang, hey, stop kissing my sister, snapping their fingers, my father yelling, you swine, to the pig pen. And Iris and, Ang sang, Iris and I sang, you must have been a beautiful baby, and you made me love you. We drank watery coffee. Iris and I ate fresh donuts, the oil still spitting in them, and Bismarck's and bear claws and brown bobbies, whatever the local pastry was, because finally, briefly, my father was paying. And my father and Francisco ate ham and eggs and blue plate specials. We all had our assignments. Francisco drove all day and haggled for gas every morning. All night, the four of us slept in one motel room and no one blinked at us. It was the war, and people were showing up in all sorts of fatherless, motherless, husbandless combinations. Francisco got a bed, Iris and I got a bed, and my father took the floor in a bedspread. In Kansas, he taught my sister how to drive just to pass the time. And in Missouri, Francisco turned straight north to Illinois. My father said he would like to see Missouri, and Francisco said, not with me, you won't. He said Missouri was like the South, and the only part of the South he ever planned to drive through was South America. My father read up on butlering, or buttling. Edgar and Francisco argued every day about what it was called. My father said that whatever you called it, it came down to ass licking and silver polishing. My father had snagged an Emily Post book, and my whole job was to ask him questions to try to stump him. Mustaches on manservants or not? Not. Who is the head of the, the, head of the table? The wife. Valet or valet? Valet, which seemed awful to me. My father promised that he would not refer to any valet he met as a valet and that he would not wear a mustache or a flower in his buttonhole, which was quite a concern on page 297 of Emily Post. Occasionally there was a memorable line or a warning in Emily Post and Francisco would sing it out like opera. All through western Pennsylvania we warbled, better to be frumpy than vulgar. And I bet if you walked up to my sister today she could quote you chapter and verse of Emily Post. Iris's job was to become a governess in six days. According to Emily Post, governesses were better educated than nannies and better paid, and she was supposed to teach the children something until someone thought they were old enough for school. Iris said she didn't know how to pretend to be a college graduate. She'd barely scraped through Windsor High. And my father said that she needed to accept that she was now officially 21 and a recent graduate of the Windsor College for Women and that he would make up her letters of reference. Iris said in that case he should make her Phi Beta Kappa, and my father said he didn't care for her overreaching. <laughs> my other job was to sum up Shakespeare's plays and recite crucial passages to Iris. I peppered Iris every day. Who was Beatrice? Why was she so mean to Benedict? What was the tempest about? And when Iris stumbled, my father would roar whole soliloquies at her. And when we couldn't stand it anymore, I would read out loud from one of the other little blue books. The little blue books were little marvels. The Art of Reading, The Egypt of Yesterday, Balzac short stories, a got to Aristotle. My father said that there was not a single thing an educated man, even a gentleman, needed to know that was not in one of the thousand little, book, little blue books. Later in my life, in fact for my whole life, I have relied on the little blue books to finish my education, and I saw why my father loved them so. The little blue books are real. The little blue books are what they call in libraries ephemera meaning they're not going to last that long. They are pocket-sized, meaning truly designed to fit in the back pocket of a man's pants or, or his breast pocket in his jacket. They were designed for a world in which it was understood that many people were not in a position to finish their education, that they didn't have the means 
or the time to finish high school. They certainly didn't have the means to go to college, but they nevertheless wished to be educated people. For me, part of what I love about the Little Blue Books is their optimism. They are written in a time where the drive in the culture is not to be famous, not to be on a video, not to learn how to lip sync effectively, but to be educated, to know things, not to know things that reinforce your own beliefs, but to know things, to be familiar with ideas and principles. And it is true that with the little blue books, it's not only the kinds of things that I talked about here, but it's all sorts of collections of short stories. <clears throat> Will Durant wrote um, a little blue book on the history of Western civilization. Margaret Sanger wrote one called What Every Married Woman Should Know. There was also one on the, the guiding principles of psychoanalysis and one of my favorites, How to Make Candy. There is nothing that you needed to know because they had 5,000 titles at a nickel apiece in which they reluctantly finally raised the price to a dime. Nothing you needed to know in the world, in the United States, that was not covered by the little blue books. And so I very much wanted to write about them. <clears throat> There's a character who comes into the novel later, and he gave me a chance really to use something I very much wanted to use, which was writing letters. Um, when, my, um, uh, when my mother died uh, some time ago, um, she was a great correspondent, and she kept a lot of cards and notes and letters, and she was also one of those people who was uh, terrific on relationships. She had active relationships with women she had gone to the third grade with, and uh, we're from the East Coast, and when I was, I didn't always like this part, but I have to say, when I was growing up, we'd be walking down Madison Avenue, and we never took a walk without somebody yelling across Madison Avenue, which is not a small street, Deli Cone, James Madison High, you know, and there would be some middle-aged person running over to catch up with her who still remembered her from high school, who had, you know, been staying in touch. And among her correspondence, there were letters um, that she marked unsent, letters that she had wished to send to somebody and chosen not to. And um, there were even a couple of letters that she marked unread. And for me, that was fascinating. Um, I come from a family in which people don't share a lot about their, their past or their history. Um, I always say, my, my family did not um, come to this country and have the Oprah experience, which is that you tell people how terrible things are and then something nice happens to you. They had sort of more of the more traditional immigrant experience, which is that you keep it to yourself and you soldier on. And so I knew nothing about my family's history, but these letters, were fascinating to me. So this is a letter from a guy named Gus, who's a garage mechanic, who enters the life of Iris and Eva, and becomes a, a friend to Eva. Dear Eva, my Yankee Doodle pal, on May 4th, while I was checking out Millie Brown's carburetor, after I gave Sticky the afternoon off because things were slow, who should come into the shop but three guys with ties and jackets and machine guns? The date on this letter is May 20th, 1943. Well, kiddo, I didn't know whether to shit or go blind, 
They tore up the shop, including the girly magazines, and what can I say, my wife asked me to keep that crap out of the house, so I did. And they read through all my bills and threw everything out of my desk. They banged around my tools for a little while, like my crescent wrench was going to turn into a Nazi flamethrower, and I just sat there on the bench, hands cuffed. I don't remember exactly what I said, but you could probably call it inflammatory. It got me nowhere, and I changed my tune. I said, how can I help you fellas? And the biggest guy hit me in the stomach and ground my face into the floor pretty good before he put me back on the bench, and that was that. Why aren't you in the military, the little one said. Possibly because of this, I said, and I pulled up my pants leg to the knee and showed them my left leg. I said I had been limping since I could walk. I said that being sucker punched now, just now, hadn't really helped, but he shouldn't blame himself. The limp was really the fault of polio, and possibly my mother, who was pretty lax about hygiene. Surprising in a German, I said. Next thing I know, I'm in the car with two of them, and they drive all day and night in shifts, and wherever we are, it's goddamn flat. And after that, I'm in a cell for two days. The hearing is four new guys, dressed like the ones who dragged me out of the shop, but not a weapon in sight. Two American flags, in case you thought you had somehow left the USA, and a big sign behind that that says United States Department of Justice. I tell you what, kiddo, you ever find yourself in a room with a sign like that, you run right out and you keep on going. Me and the four guys talk. They say, what is your relationship with Standard Oil? And I say, I worked for them for a year in 1934. They said, how'd you come up with the capital to open your own shop? I tell them I bought out Gibby Schmidt. And that's like a fart in church, another German name. Now it's a goddamn conspiracy. How about your wife, one of the guys says. I tell them that Rini is Italian-American on her father's side and her late mother was Irish, and now we're doubling down on my wife's gene pool. I mention her father was an American war hero in World War I, and her brother is a priest. I say that I feel that her father's Medal of Honor should somehow balance out her innately untrustworthy Italianness, And we go back to why I sometimes work at night and what kind of shortwave radio do I have. And they won't say who dropped the dime on me. They tell me that decent Americans everywhere are keeping their eyes and ears open for threats to America, especially threats within our own borders. And I tell them that if they think a fat, gimpy mechanic with a German last name is a threat to America, I am more worried about this country than I was when the Japs hit us. Later, I'll tell you about the Japs at this camp they have me in. They garden, and the men wrestle, and you haven't really lived until you've seen some little nip drop kick a 200-pound Bavarian and leave him face down on the canvas. We do have some times here. The Alien Enemies Act of 1798 turns out to be important. I should have paid attention in school. You may ask yourself exactly who were our enemies in 1798, besides a bunch of Indians, but I don't say a word. The old guy at the table tells me that under the terms of the enemy alien control program, they can offer me two choices. Stay in beautiful Fort Lincoln in Bismarck, North Dakota until 1947, or be repatriated back to Germany. Back to Germany, the guy keeps saying. I say, I was hardly in Germany. I came here when I was two months old. My father didn't speak German at home because he wanted us to be real Americans. I tell them all the German I know, which is shut up, the kids are listening, and I'm going to give you an ass-kicking you won't forget. And the old guy shakes his head slightly like it's too bad, I'm such an ignoramus. But the big man in the middle brings his hand down like a gavel and says, Mr. Gus Heitman, at this time you will be residing in Fort Lincoln, enjoying the hospitality of Uncle Sam while we keep America safe. You know me. I'm capable of brooding. I think a lot about who did this to me and what I'm going to do to him when I get out. I hope life at the beauty salon is going okay. 
you say hi to the Diego girls, you say hi to being Carney for me, and if you get this, and if you see Rini, my wife, you tell her I'm sorry. You tell her I wish you luck. Gus Heitman. This next set of letters. <coughs> um, are short notes, and they are taking place in a nightclub. And they are written by Edgar, the father, who is now a butler. And they are written uh, to a woman he sings sing in a jazz club on his night off. It's 1943. Dear Miss Williams, I'm writing to you after an evening at the nightcap. I am the chap who brought you a stinger between sets, but you have so many admirers that that description may not help my cause. Your performance tonight was splendid. I think that Lena Horne herself would have applauded, applauded your stormy weather, and your version of There Are Such Things was truly beautiful. I will be at the nightcap next Sunday. If I may, I will again buy you a drink between sets. Yours in admiration, Edgar V. Acton. Edgar wrote the note 10 times. He didn't write, I am the white man who brought you a drink because it was possible that there had been other white men at the other shows, although he hadn't seen any. Edgar felt that the whole letter had more of a Jeeves on the country house tone than he had intended. He had never used the word chap in his life, but he was now an English butler in a Negro nightclub, and he thought that foolishness might be his trump card. He hadn't thought about how it would be inside the nightcap. He had a free Saturday night, which he rarely did. Saturday night, the Torelli family usually had 20 or 30 relatives over for dinner, and Edgar tended bar, served the priest, supervised the buffet, and drove the resentful cousins he had not been able to keep out of Joe Torelli's scotch back to the Bronx, from whence they come, Joe Torelli would say. The Irish bars of the town were rough and charmless, and Manhattan was a big pond after Ohio and Edgar wanted a place he could listen to jazz where no one knew him and no one wanted to. Inside the nightcap, Edgar was not invisible. He shone, and not in a good way. The bouncer was Negro. The tall, creamy coat check girl was Negro. The broad-shouldered, bald-headed bartender and all of the men and women around him were Negro. He had often been the only man in a room full of women, but it never bothered him. To be the sole man was not unpleasant. Sometimes it's charming. Nice women rarely turn on a man they know, and even if they do, he thought, they're women. Their weapons are words. But the nightcap was filled with tired cleaning ladies and baby nurses who worked hard for their living, and a few working girls, and men with nicked thick hands and cut faces, laborers, cooks, truck drivers, fighters. After Edgar had sat 10 minutes at a rickety table, a young man brought him a gin and he let go of Edgar's glass reluctantly, not opening his hand until Edgar had given him $5 and told him to keep it, and then the waiter moved a little quicker, as if service could now be expected. Edgar's first impulse was appeasement. If he knew what would make these men smile and these women forgive him, he would offer it. He would soft-shoe across the small stage, make fun of his own accent and his pallor, demonstrate his essential harmlessness so he could stay in the nightcap and not get hurt. Dear Miss Williams, it was a pleasure to see you again. I fear that I may have interrupted your conversation with your colleague, the drummer, and I apologize. I am delighted that you remembered encountering me outside the Silver Star Diner. I certainly remembered you. Would you consider joining me for a late supper at Gino's this coming Wednesday evening? I understand that Mr. Circhiello is quite a jazz fan, and I am sure he would be honored to have you at his restaurant. Yours, Edgar V. Acton. There would be difficulties in courting Clara. 
He was almost 20 years older. He was white. He wasn't rich. He wasn't certain that even by the standards of a Negro jazz singer on Long Island, he qualified as good enough. He gave a lot of thought to which places would be welcoming to them as a couple, and he felt that Greenwich Village was his first choice. From what he had heard from Earl, the bartender at the nightcap, there were a few nightclubs in Harlem, and that would be a different, distant second choice. But Clara, having been born and raised in America, didn't give it another thought. Do you have your own home, she said. They walked down Hudson Street, and dinner at Gino's had been a success. The food covered the plate. The tomato sauce was mildly spicy and thick, and one could imagine a warm-hearted, chubby woman who was not like Edgar's mother, and really not like Clara's mother, stirring a pot in the kitchen, humming some Neapolitan tune. They weren't welcomed with any special attention, but no one raised an eyebrow, and they got a good table, and the man said, good night, signorina, good night, signore, and it was a tremendous success for them. They had been seen and served and thanked. Edgar drove them back to the house Clara shared, to the room she rented from her cousin of the drummer, and they sat in the car, and Edgar put the radio on. Like a couple of kids, Clara said, well, you, of course, are a spring flower, Edgar said. I should be bringing you to the Ritz. Clara sat still. Oh, you think if the Ritz Hotel was handy, I'd let you take me there, she said. Edgar's sympathies were all with Clara. Clara, I am too old for you, and I am not rich, and I want to take you out every evening that we are both free, and I want us to go to the best clubs and eat dinner at places like Gino's, which I can hardly afford on a butler's salary, and if I follow my impulses in this matter, I will have to steal the Torelli family silver, pawn it at that place we passed tonight, and unless I am very clever, spend the rest of my quiet life in the state penitentiary breaking rocks. I see that, Clara said. I do see you on the chain gang. I see you singing, I'm in the jailhouse now, from dawn to dusk. I do know I'm in the jailhouse now, Edgar said. You do not. I may struggle with the tune, he said, and he sang, not badly and in, his, in no accent but his own. I told him once or twice, Keep, quit playing cards and shooting dice. He's in the jailhouse now. Clara smiled and shook her head. Edgar said, I know. I can't impress you. And he leaned forward and kissed Clara on her neck and her cheek. He wanted to lick off her makeup to kiss the perfect bare Clara underneath. And Clara thought that it would be good if he did. It would be cool water on her blistered heart if he did. One of the things that was really interesting for me to write about and to explore was the relationships between white Americans and black Americans during that period in the war because in many places our society was segregated, we, f we often forget that there were corners of the world and music was one of them in which black and white Americans met. And I was very interested in exploring a romance um, between an older English butler and an African-American jazz singer 20 years younger than him. And part of what was interesting to me is that people often say about my work, oh, you write about all these very unlikely romances. And I am here to say, I'm married to a man. I don't understand how less likely it can be that men and women understand each other. I think that you know, a long and happy marriage is an act of active translation. You know, what do I mean? How do I feel? What do I say? And I think that that works not only between men and women, but in all couples. I think that the act of being with another person intimately and being understood and being seen for who you really are and loved anyway is what people strive for. 
and it seems to me that any two people who come together are already fighting the odds of their differences because I am me brought up in my family. When I was a therapist, I used to encounter couples sometimes, especially around Thanksgiving, who were already grimly anticipating Christmas. And I would say, well, what's the problem? And he would say things like, she doesn't want to put the tree up until Christmas Eve. And she would say, in my family, we put the tree up Christmas Eve. And I would say, when do you put up the Christmas Eve? He would say, December 1st. And she said, that's horrible. They get so dry. He said, they don't get dry in my house because we always had a beautiful plastic tree. <laughs> so for me, I think my own personal experience and my own life experience has been all couples go uphill. All couples have to learn to speak each other's language or at least a rough approximation of each other's language. One is never fluent in the other person's language but one looks for signs, there's a lot of hand gestures, and there's a lot of, if you get the opportunity, explaining over time, I mean this, this matters to me for this reason. And so I wanted to give Edgar and Clara a chance. Um, Iris has, uh, Eva has gotten a bag of books and encounters her father in the kitchen at the Torelli's house. That night, I walked into the Torelli kitchen for a snack and almost tripped over my father drinking a cup of coffee. My father and I were hardly ever alone together. My father and Clara were a couple, and I was to everyone, including me, odd man out. Hello, stranger, he said. What's in the bag? And I showed him the books, and he whistled when he saw Butterfield 8, and he asked me if I found it racy, and I said I found it sad, and I could see that he liked my answer, and I hoped he would ask me about the other books, and I would come up with deep, interesting answers. You know what I like to read, he said, those little blue books we read on the Great Trek East? Thousands of them, something for everyone. And we walked back to the carriage house where we lived in the dark. And when I need to call up my father when I want to feel loved by him, I remember him dancing with me in my bedroom back in Abingdon before my mother left me on his porch. And I think of him then guiding me through the forsythia bushes, his fingers brushing the moss away from my face at the carriage house front door. What's this, he said. It was a pack of old cards with green plaid on the back and all kinds of pictures. Tarot, he said, the secrets of the universe. I was not averse to knowing the secrets of the universe. And my father threw the two top cards on the table, the queen of cups, a grim blonde in a long white dress on a granite throne, and the lovers, Adam and Eve, holding hands under a winged god with flaming hair. My father snorted, appalling, he said. But in the morning, I found a box of 30 little blue books outside my door, and his note said, educate yourself, history of evolution, auto-suggestion, how it works, French self-taught, heavily penciled, what every married man should know, what every married woman should know, how to make all kinds of candy, the proverbs of Arabia, Chekhov's short stories, and underneath them all, an introduction to the reading of Tarot. The 78 cards came with a small stained instruction booklet, and every picture told a story, and the story suited me. Occasionally, the pictures were cheerful. A juggler skipped along holding big coins. The naked lady dipped her pitcher into a starry pond, but more often, death rode in on a big white horse. Dogs baited a frowning moon. Lightning struck a forbidding tower, and it burst into flames. Suddenly, I was reading tarot cards in the beauty parlor, and I had money. 
I opened a bank account, bank account across the street from the beauty parlor. I hadn't had a dime of my own that I hadn't stolen since we left Ohio. My father paid for his own immaculate self and for evenings out with Clara. I had been wearing my sister's hand-me-downs for four years badly and I had hardly noticed. Now, I got my makeup done by B and Carney. I wore a skirt and blouse and Carney did my hair and makeup. You don't have to be a beauty queen, she said. You just have to look normal, attractive, because you're in the shop. You represent us. But you need to know like you look something special if you're reading cards, B said, and she dotted a beauty mark near my mouth. I had college girl clothes and I did my hair the way college girls did and I stuffed my bra. I had two pairs of new shoes and the pain in my chest, which I had had since the day I was left on the porch, eased up. I think it wasn't grief. I think it was being broke and badly dressed and now I wasn't. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Amy Bloom and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman commenting that some of the selections Bloom read left her quite sad. What inspires Bloom to write in this tone? I don't blame you. I don't like that idea myself. Um, what I often say about my novels is that I don't write to recommend. I don't write to say, this is what I think you ought to do. I mean, I have three children. I've never left anybody on a porch. Um, but I also write about the world as I find it, not just as I would wish it to be. And one of the things that I think is true is that we have often, I'm not sure it's always a, a lucky thing for women, we often have this kind of glowing, idealized vision of motherhood and of children and of their mothers. And I love it when you have a wonderful mother raising a happy child. But I also understand that that is not always the case in the world. Our next question asker wonders how often Bloom draws on her career as a psychotherapist for her novels. I think the answer to that is that the thing that has been most helpful to me, I was actually a clinical social worker, was the training. Uh, I went to graduate school a really, really long time ago. And um, I, the approach that I was trained in was very old school. And it was basically keep your eyes open and your judgment suspended and your mouth shut. And um, this is not the worst way to go through life either. But um, for me, it was a great way to approach people. It was, a great, it was great training as a novelist. You know, one of the things that I learned, as I'm sure all of you learn, is that first of all, if you allow people to tell them your story, people are really interesting. I mean, if you say to somebody, how are you, they will say fine. But if you are actually interested, they will tell you about their lives. And people are, are far more interesting than we, than we take them to be. But the other thing is that to know how somebody looks is not to know who they are. And that opportunity to explore people more deeply, to get to know people, to see the gap between what they say and how they really feel was always interesting to me. But the truth is, I think those are things that led me to becoming a therapist. Um, and they led me to becoming a novelist. I mean, the, the real thing about being a writer for me 
is that the only thing that interests me are people. There is, I'm sorry to say, for those of you who love tremendous descriptions of landscapes in your novels, not so much. <laughs> if you take me to a museum, I spend five minutes looking at the landscapes because they're beautiful, and five minutes looking at abstract art because I feel that I should, and then I look at portraits because what interests me is human beings. And the other thing that interests me as much as people is language. You know, my wish is to create a novel. There's a writer, John Gardner, and he had a wonderful book called The Art of Fiction. And in it, he says that the job of the writer is to create a dream that the reader can enter and not to interfere with it, not to insert myself into it, but to create it so that you can enter the world as if it is happening right there in front of you and you don't have to leave that world until you shut the covers. And so I think, again, my, my background as a therapist was to try to stay out of the story, to let the story unfold for the person telling me the story, and then as a writer, to let the story happen right in front of the reader. This audience member asked Bloom if in part she became a therapist to help better understand herself. I don't, I don't think so. You know, I, I'm always interested that part of the description sometimes about me is that, you know, previously I was a psychotherapist. I was also a bartender for a long time, and nobody ever mentions that on my resume, um, which, needless to say, had a lot of things in common with being a psychotherapist, including a lot of listening and a lot of patience. And, um, you know, I did get to ask people to leave, which was, which was nice sometimes as a bartender. I think I went in, I think I became a therapist very much really for the same reasons that I became a writer. I mean, I, I was interested in, in being of service and of being helpful to people, but it's also true, I find people interesting. I find them surprising, I find them interesting. What I, Willa Cather says, there are only five human stories, and what's amazing is how often they repeat themselves. And you all know this, I mean, you're all grown-ups. You, you know that if you've known somebody for 20 years, and you know, like your neighbor comes over and she starts to tell you a story about the terrible fight that she had with so-and-so, if you've known the woman for 20 years, you have a pretty good idea how that story is gonna end. You know, if you've got some pal at work and you're a guy and he starts to tell you the story about this decision he had to make, and you've known him for a long time, you know what decision he's going to make. The people are not surprising in that way, but they are always interesting in the way they approach their life. You know, I always say that you can take two people, they have a terrible car accident. One of those people overcomes. One of those people is warm and engaged and grateful that they are alive, and the other person pulls down the shades is deeply embittered and never speaks to another person. It's not the car accident. The car accident reveals who they are. It doesn't make them who they are. And so those are the things I think that led me. I'm, I'm interested in how people make their way in the world. Someone asked Bloom if she recalls how she came up with the phrase, his lips upon her neck were like cool water upon her blistered heart. The audience member wondered whether Bloom's own heart was with her character in that moment. I wish I could say yes. I, every time I come up with a phrase that, that appeals to a reader, you know, that there's like a little ledger somewhere in my desk, and I go, oh, that is good, you know, keep doing more of that. Um, it's how I felt about Clara. I felt that Clara was a woman who had had, in many ways, a hard life. And although Edgar was not the man she thought she would be with and not the person whose love she had sought, 
there was something about being with him that was water in the desert for her. It's not what she had expected and not what she had sought, but once she experienced it, she could see the beauty of it. My heart is always with my characters. I mean, I write my people. The truth is you cannot write a good character if you don't love them. You don't have to like them and you don't have to approve of them but you have to be able to see the world as they see it. Villains do not see themselves as villains. Villains see themselves as misunderstood, put upon, underappreciated and overworked, you know? And so you have to write the character from the inside, not how they look to other people, but how they see the world. So when I am writing from Clara's point of view, my heart is with her because I am inside of Clara. The next question inquires about how Amy Bloom develops her stories. How does Bloom develop a plot when she is so interested in the characters? It's true that I start with character. I mean, I can't really write the story or the novel until I can hear somebody's voice in my head, you know, telling you the story. But after that, you know, you hope... It's like starting a fire with damp wood. I mean, you know, you're just sitting there, you know, with a little flint on the steel, hoping that it catches fire. And then when it does, you pay attention and you breathe on it and you hope that it takes on a life of its own, which is what you want the characters to do. But in terms of storytelling, although it's true that all my work is character-driven, the fact is I grew up reading 19th century novels. I like story. I like that things happen. I don't just want people to go to the grocery store, use their coupons, pick up a turkey breast, take it home, make a nice meal, watch a little television, and call it a night. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what I want to write. I wanted, I wanted to be engaged with the story as a writer the way I was when I was a reader, and the way I still like very much now as a reader. So incident reveals character. It's like I said about the bus accident, the car accident. It reveals who people are. So you have to give your people things that happen. And it's, it's nice for me as a writer if the things that happen are also interesting to me, which is why I set this novel in the 1940s. This next question is whether or not Bloom's characters surprise her at times. Sometimes they surprise me, but the fact is I did create them. And it's not as if they suddenly go off on their own. There was this famous interview with Alice Walker in which she said, that she loved the fact that at night her characters would come sit at the end of her bed and talk to her. And I always think, you know, in my house, if there is somebody sitting at the end of the bed, they're saying things like, where's the Pepto-Bismol? They are not saying, let me reveal my inner life as a fictional character. But it's true that if you get to know the characters well enough as you're creating them and layer them, sometimes, I had not seen, actually, the relationship between Clara and Edgar when I created Edgar and Clara. It was as they came to sort of move through the world that I could begin to see them more clearly. We next go to an audience member asking if Bloom felt that listening to other people's stories enhanced her life as well as her writing. I'm sure that listening to, to people's stories has, has you know, shaped, shaped my listening, but it's, the truth is I listen to people's stories whether I'm in an office or not. I, you know, I am, I am the lady on the bus that people says, you know, just the other day, as if we've been hanging out for years, you know, just the other day, blah, 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 or can you believe this happened, or oh my gosh, you know, I just had my kidney out three weeks, whatever it is, I am that person. My mother used to say, <laughs> that was very funny, she used to say, well, it's because you look nice. 
by which I think she meant to imply that I wasn't quite as nice as I looked, but I had a friendly face. <laughs> so people tell me their stories, and they always have. And so in the office or out of the office, behind the bar, I, am, I think it is because I am genuinely interested. Um, people do not bore me. Sometimes they appall me, but as I'm sure happens to most of us, but they don't bore me. And so that, that, that leads to the telling the stories. I don't want to tell a story that bores me, and I, I don't want to, you know, and I don't want to tell one that bores the reader. Our last question of the night comes from a gentleman wondering to what extent Bloom thinks love can transform. I think that there are moments in one's life when one is available to be changed. They are usually moments of crisis. Um, and I think if in that moment someone says to themselves, whatever it is, my wife left me, I'm going to do things differently from now on, and you do things differently. You know, it's, 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 to me, there is sort of moments in life's, life in which one, things heat up and one's nature becomes a little more malleable and a little more porous. And I got to tell you, when things cool down, that door shuts. Um, people can absolutely change their behavior. I think you get a w little wiggle room in your character. Um, and love is one of those opportunities. And so if you have great love in your life and you are prepared to make some shifts to make that love last, you have the opportunity to be transformed. But um, love itself is not fairy dust. You know, love itself is the process of a relationship. And what one does in response to that often is an expression of one's character. So that is what I think about that. Thank you all very much for coming. Well, that's it from our Dakota County's Galaxy Library event with Amy Bloom. Catch our next Club Book event with Louise Penny at Scott County's Prior Lake Library on Saturday, August 30th at 2 p.m. Meet Louise Penny, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on Club Book's Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoyed these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.